Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cybersecurity Hot Takes with me, your host, Reese Guida, and... I'm uh, Jason Casey. I'm the CTO of Beyond Identity, and apparently I remembered how to do the intro this time. Yeah, I think that was the best one yet, probably because there was only one and that needed to happen. <laughs> so yeah, everybody, it's just me and Jason today, and we're going to talk about something that everyone in this industry is certainly aware of, and I'd say that the everyday person is aware of it too. There's a cybersecurity labor shortage. And you know the hot take for today is that that's a population problem more than anything. So Jason, do you want to unpack how um, declining population impacts cybersecurity jobs? <laughs> uh, more of amusing than a uh, uh, direct connection. But yeah, I think, yeah. I think the, sh- the, the cybersecurity job shortage is a tech job shortage, which is probably related to just a worker job shortage. And and the the couple thoughts get me there. Number one, um, if we just think about demographics, right, the, the 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 bulk of the demographic that's leaving the workforce over the next ten years is larger than the bulk of the, uh, the 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 demographic entering the workforce or that exists in the workforce, right? So that's going to create scarcity. That's going to create just an imbalance of if we if we're really just trying to do a one for one replacement, there's clearly not enough people, right? So that's kind of one thread to keep in your mind. The second thread to keep in your mind is the world is being eaten by technology, right? There's almost no job um, where you don't have to use technology or create technology. Um, every job is basically a tech job, which requires a certain skill set that not every person entering the workforce uh, comes with, right? And then um, if we even if we peel back the onion one more bit, uh, which I think is more of like the industry and domain specific problems. Um, Every tech job is not the same, right? There are tech jobs where your job is to use technology. There are tech jobs where your job is to integrate technology. And there are jobs where um, your role is to kind of create it. And even within technology creation, there's striations, right? So there's, am I building an application that just has to think about a domain? um, Or am I building a system that's a a more complex kind of multi-domain thing? So, you know, the skills, the principles, the, your abilities and experience necessary to be successful at all of those things is different. You can kind of think of it as a pyramid, right? It might be the systems might be the hardest, the application may be the next hardest, um, and then the usage is probably the easiest. And when I say hardest and easiest, I just mean kind of requisite skills coming into the, uh, the equation. That would also assume um, that for equal capable folks going through some sort of training program, um, the, they're going to, uh, kind of lay out across those three areas really based on compensation and pay and really kind of what the market supply and demand is deciding those things are worth. And if it's harder to do one thing in theory, um, you know, the comp is going to be larger than the next. And if that's harder than the next, in theory, the comp is going to be larger. Um, with that said, it's not necessarily true, uh, when what's going on right now. And what I mean by that is, the a lot of application creation and system creation, at least in the US, happens within the startup ecosystem. And the startup ecosystem, by definition, doesn't have the pockets of a large company. Um, so the immediate compensation is certainly not equivalent to what um, a Google or a Facebook or a Microsoft would pay mm-hmm. for their version of system creation. So uh, the way the startup compensates is really the way it, it always is compensated, which is 
um, trying to, um, number one, trying to find people that are passionate about the area um, and view that, view the ability to work on the things they really want to work on, as opposed to just compensation, uh, as meaningful work. And then the second, the second part of it, or I should say the third part of it, is meaningful ownership in what's being created, right? So like at a startup, um, everyone is given stock. We're really options and ability to own a piece of the company uh, over a period of time. Whereas at large companies, usually you just get RSUs, which is just another form of cash payment. Um, and if a startup does well, and granted most startups don't, but if the startup does do well, um, you know, the, 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 the person is rewarded outsized compared to if they were to go to another company. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, you know, there's, there's these macro trends, which is uh, replacement and loss, right. Or in, out of, out of whack. The second is the world's being eaten by technology, which means for everyone entering the workforce, um, who's not capable of working on, on, on technical problems, the number of jobs that don't have technical problems is diminishing. And then just within the, the systems and applications creation world, um, there's always been this imbalance of compensation. So supply and demand by itself doesn't solve the problem if we're being kind of um, short-term focused. Yeah. Uh, but if we're being longer-term focused, um, it, it, it tends to work itself out. I think that the market is going to recognize the importance of secure systems and the people who build them. You know, one thing that's just occurring to me that didn't come up in those three points you mentioned, which again, were related to population, software eating the world and the different kinds of technology users in the workforce and Mm -hmm. technology builders. We we didn't mention AI. And I I wonder if, I wonder how that factors into things when it comes to the job shortage. Um, I guess it depends on what you mean, right? So uh, in AI is, there's, well, there's just general fear, right? That people are afraid of AI, like, you know, from South Park, they took my gerb, that uh, kind of thing. I, I don't know how that curveball, you know, enters this debate. Yeah. I, so I don't know if AI is taking a person's job so much as in order to supply what the world needs, mm. job market, it's, the jobs themselves have to change. And it's about um, people entering the job market being able to, and people who are in the job market being able to kind of handle that change. So most AI is really about um, trying to provide, um, uh, now I'm going to, uh, I'm going to flub my words. It's like this autumn, uh, most AI is kind of about simple, simplistic automation and, and, and better, better algorithms to really execute these things called decision problems is this a cat? <laughs> Obviously it's, it's, it, you know, we, we can use it in a lot more interesting ways than is this a cat, but that sounds pretty interesting to me, but, but yeah, uh, most of what AI gives us is, is, is solutions to decision problems using interesting heuristics. It's, it's not going to eliminate the need uh, for skilled knowledge workers. It is going to present more of a need for skilled knowledge workers again, to be able to create, as well as to be able to integrate, as well as to be able to use. Yeah, so I guess AI would fit into the third point that you made, which is the different kinds of technology users, AI being a tool that they can deploy when building systems. If technology is eating the world, then there's almost no job in the world that's not going to include some flavor of AI. And from a, a work perspective, that's we're going to require workers who understand, obviously, at the bottom of the pyramid, how to create it. In the middle of the pyramid, 
how to integrate it with, you know, right? Because systems are always complex integrations of things. And at the top of the pyramid, how to use it. Maybe it's an inverted pyramid, right? Because we clearly are going to have a lot more users than integrators, and we're going to have more integrators than creators. But we still need to produce people in the workforce that can kind of operate at those three levels, whether it's AI um, uh, or whether it is um, uh, formal trusted systems, right? Uh, which is a... Uh, you know, a different branch of, uh, of CS and, and computer engineering around how do I know this thing is actually true? Oh, yeah. And speaking of CS and computer engineering, I, I had this conversation with a doorman in my building and his son is 19. He's starting out at college and he's at that age where he has to pick a major. And his dad really wants him to go into cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. But the son is just not interested at all. And I was thinking about ways to get him interested because you, like you said, a passion for the work is really important to joining startups, knowing that you're taking a risk and putting most of the value in that risk paying off in the form of stock options. So I, I, I don't know if the university his son is attending has a cybersecurity program, right? Maybe people would be inclined to say, hey, a way to solve the job shortage is to put cybersecurity programs in universities. Do you see that as being a fix? Or do you think that existing disciplines like math, physics, engineering, um, kind of cover that ground already? Uh, so there's a lot of things there. So I guess number one, yeah. uh, when you're 19, you, you don't know anything uh, in, in terms of what you want to do with your life, right? Like you've, you, you've never been on your own. You never made decisions outside of the context of your parents helping um, you don't know what you're going to like. Right. And so generally, I mean, what did you like when you were 19? What did you want to study? Uh, what, so I wanted to study, um, uh, <laughs> what did I like when I was 19? <laughs> um, so aside from the normal things of a teenager, um, I loved physics and I had no practical use for it. I loved physics because it explained the world in a way that made sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, math was a tool to make physics understandable. Um, and ultimately electrical engineering was a, uh, a path on my journey in that I knew that eventually I had to get a job, uh, that job needed to be able to pay me so I could have, you know, a lifestyle similar to what, uh, I'd experienced as a child. And it wasn't obvious to me that a physicist, uh, was, uh, was, was able to get work, but it was obvious to me that electrical engineer could. And it was obvious to me that electrical engineer was pretty damn close to a physicist, at least in the curriculum that you got to study in school. Um, so that's kind of how I got there. But back to your bigger question, you know, if you don't know anything when you're 19, the, like the advice I typically give people is um, study, study something that you're actually interested in and just keep your mind open and try and go somewhere where you have optionality. Um, I think college is great and necessary for a lot of the jobs that we talked about a minute ago. Uh, it's not necessary for everyone and it's not necessary for all jobs. Also, it's not necessary that you go to college when you're done with high school, right? Uh, I've got a lot of friends that just for whatever reason, and it's not a judgment, right? Just for whatever reason, where they were in their life at that point in time, they needed something else. And until they got that, that else, they weren't really ready to be successful in a collegiate environment. But for a systems creator or an application creator, um, I do think there are fundamental skills. Think of it as a mental toolbox that you get from education, not from training, right? Yeah. And what would like some of those skills be? 
Um, so the, the STEM toolbox is kind of the deductive reasoning toolbox combined with this um, construction through composition toolbox, right? So if, if I'm a math major, right, I don't, and I, and I, I start learning like, why, so when I'm a math major, when I first start studying math, I'm really just told how, here how all these theorems and formula work. And, and when you see this problem, use this and use this and use this. But as you as you evolve in your curriculum, you then start to take courses to, that that really beg the question, yeah, but why does that work? Like, how do we know it really works? Are there constraints in when it will or won't work, right? And so then you start trying to prove these things, or you see, and that's super how, important. Those questions when it comes to cybersecurity, you need well, to be able to prove them. Well, that, that's that's important, but but the way, but the the next part of it is even more so, right? You often mm. can never prove the thing. And in first go. So you have to take the problem and you have to break it down into subproblems. That's kind of like what we talked about in our last episode about zero trust and the assumptions that underlie it. Zero trust is a, is, is a, <laughs> it's in my mind, it's a way of saying taking sound engineering principles and reapplying it uh, to a security problem, right? So just like in math, right? We don't try and do a big thing. We try and break a big thing into a series of small things, make mm-hmm. progress with those small things. And then prove that when we bring those small things together, we get something that's slightly larger until we get to our end result. In engineering, it's no different. A good engineer uh, approaches a problem, uh, a large problem, and tries to break it down into a series of subproblems. right? A good physicist does the same thing. They don't try and solve the, the, the problem for the cow. They start with saying, assume a spherical cow, <laughs> and then they solve the problem for a sphere, right? And this is, the, this is a mental toolbox, and really the difference between education and training in my mind, right? Like, a STEM education builds your toolbox on how to decompose problems, find solutions for the small problems, know why they work and when they work, and then know how to bring those things together in a safe environment. Training is how do I apply my toolbox to a domain, right? So cybersecurity is a domain, but so is um, um, aviation flight control systems, right? But the principles of proving that my software is correct in the auto lander for my airplane versus the um, uh, secure boot proof that my uh, BIOS bootloader and operating system has not been modified by an adversary. The toolbox is the same. The domain is what's different. So tying it back to your original premise, um, like cybersecurity is, is, in my mind, is more about training and, and, you know, colleges can certainly have training programs, right? You can think of it as like the finishing program. Like if you want to go in this area, we'll give you a class to introduce you to some of the domains of this particular area and kind of get you moving there. Uh, I do think it's on companies more so than universities. Um, to I would agree. They have to incentivize workers. And, and the uh, part of the problem that I have, and this is, this is definitely kind of a counterpoint, right? I, I, I know most people have the opposite point. Um, companies complain that universities aren't producing workers that actually can get work done. And I think from a company's perspective, that's a bit short-sighted. And, and, and what I mean there is if, the, if they put enough pressure on the universities to where the students stop graduating with that toolbox of skills, they're going, um, it's certainly easy to train them on the domain quickly, right? But the domain without the toolbox of skills is going to equal a lot of solutions that actually don't work. 
that don't have the properties you think they have and that ultimately you're going to have to replace that don't have longevity that won't survive the test of time. Because the foundation is lacking in terms of the thinking of how to build those things. Yeah, I can Uh, see what you mean by how that's dangerous. Yeah, short term versus medium long term, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. think think of it as the impetus of the product manager. The product manager wants to see daily, weekly, monthly progress on a customer's business problem and they don't care about anything else, right? It's not their problem on whether they're the engineers are 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 uh, have the toolbox or don't have the toolbox. Uh, the thing that's most apparent to them is do they have the domain or do they not have the domain? The problems of building a product without the toolbox but with the domain typically don't show up till months eighteen to twenty four to thirty six to forty eight. And yep. based on job hopping in our industry right now, how many product managers do you think survive long enough or stay long enough to suffer the consequences of their choices? Right. That is deep. And I would say not many. Um, so 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 this so this is why I was saying, like, over the long term, these things will all work themselves out. Unfortunately, we all live in the short term and have to solve problems in the short term. And so the, the, the sh- there's not a lot of short term pressure um, incentivized around building things that can survive around, like, actually, um, I don't know, hiring people with the right skill sets, with that mental toolbox and then uh the domain training because the reality is is like we all want that quick serotonin squirt oh yeah we do and the job shortage is you know certainly opens the door for quick salary increase by just hopping around but if i as an engineering leader staff engineer product manager never suffer the consequences of of domain-based decisions without informed by my mental toolkit um clearly that i'm never going to develop that muscle right so let's just say you were like the overlord of cybersecurity and you had the power to magically fix this in the short term. What are a couple things you would do so that people are more incentivized to, you know, kind of stick around, deal with their consequences, you know, or conversely, before they even have the chance to get there, have the tools necessary to build the systems that the world needs right now? Um so, I mean, the, 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 the simplest answer is, you know, uh, I, I don't have an easy answer. We're still struggling with wrapping our hands around these things, too. But like the, Fair enough. the things that we try to do. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, compensation at a startup is really important and long term incentives are important. So we try and handle that with stock. Right. You don't just get stock when you join, but stock vests over time. Um, we try and we don't always do a great job, but we try and hold up a mirror in that. If we're doing our jobs right as managers in a startup, every individual is contributing to a product and contributing to a customer's success. And so holding up the mirror and making sure all of those engineers get to see their work, help another human, another person, another group, it, 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 it is fulfilling, right? Even if it's in a small way and that, that, that sort of counts. Um, other things uh, to try and promote people to stick around in the long time is um, uh, teamwork. Right. In terms of like uh, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people, part of their work enjoyment is do they enjoy working with their team? Right. And enjoying your team really just means, you know, you kind of know your team. You have time to spend time with your team. So we try and kind of promote that sort of uh, uh, environment, which is certainly hard during COVID. But, you know, we do what we can. Um, A lot of it also comes down to employee selection. And that's also hard. Right. Like there's no perfect hiring. There's. There's really kind of trying to buy, you're rolling the dice. So how do you bias the dice to come up more often in your favor than not? But how do you hire people that have that 
um, the properties that you think are going to make them stick around, right? So have they stuck around in their previous jobs is a good indicator. It's not perfect, but it's an indicator. Do they have a clear long running passion uh, in their work history uh, from X to Y to Z, right? With younger workers, you never have answers to those questions. And so you're just rolling the dice. And like I said earlier, right? Like when you're 19, you don't know anything in terms of like what you're gonna like and not like. And so uh, I don't know if this number is still true, but like back when I was a hiring manager, I used to not, I used to assume my, my fresh grads would never stick around for more than two years and ha half of them would split at two years and go to a different industry, right? Wow. Um, like they'd go to business school and get an MBA or they'd switch uh, or go back to school and get a, a, a legal degree or, 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 or switch and join a um, finance or something like that. And, you know, honestly, I, I think in some scenarios like those scenarios, that's not a it's not really a fault of anyone. You just kind of have to plan for it, because, again, when when you're 19, you've experienced this much of the world. So how do you really know what you want right out of life? Um, but, uh, yeah, I, getting people to stick around, uh, there's no easy answers. The best I can I can hope for is trying to find people who it, who have a, who have work experience, who have stuck around before that are really kind of invested in certain types of problems that have good chemistry with the team. Um, and and then, want to see their work do good in the world. Yeah. yeah. So we would be remiss to talk about a problem without trying to pose a solution, right? So I think we're hiring right now, right, Jason? What's, what's a job or two that you'd like to feature for listeners of this podcast who may be interested or may know someone who has those qualities you talked about? So uh, we got a ton of jobs. Um, so uh, one of the most pressing jobs right now actually is someone to uh, run the, uh, the the IT function for the company. Um, it's a, a New York City-based job. We have an office in New York with about eighty people. Uh, those people are there. The off there are people in the office every day of the week, uh, but Tuesday through Thursday is really when the the majority of them are in. Um, it's very much, uh, kind of a, a, young company bullpen style environment. That's where a lot of our inside sales is happening. That's where a lot of our, um, uh, uh marketing and, and, uh, certainly where all of our execs are. Um, so ha getting someone, uh, to actually lead that function, uh, who's New York based, uh, who's comfortable, uh, coming into the office and wants to come into the office to kind of help train others and learn what it's all about. We have a, uh, penthouse 41st floor next to the empire state building beautiful views got a great deal because of uh covid um and we have a fully stocked kitchen that i use every day <laughs> <laughs> the uh what else uh we've got um support engineering jobs uh based in dallas texas um so again this is great for um kind of like uh, uh folks earlier or mid in their career who like the idea of doing systems integration um, back to that kind of middle tier of the pyramid that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a bunch of uh, engineers that live in that area with backgrounds in telco and big systems. Uh, and then of course, we're always hiring, um, you know, software engineers uh, that are, um, I, I used to, I, I like to say principally trained, but what I mean by that is, uh, doesn't necessarily have to be degreed, but it has to be obvious that they acquired the skills that you would acquire uh, through going through a degree program. Uh, yeah, they have the toolkit. Of that mental toolkit, right? Like yeah. they, they understand decomposition of software. 
They understand um, that when I'm looking at a large scale system, the first thing I have to think about is the domain model of that system and the life cycle of that domain model. And then when I subcompartment that domain model, the, the microsystems or the microfunctions, if you will, then start to emerge. Like uh, we're always hiring people like that in terms of specialties. Um, anyone in the uh, data science, data analytics, ML, I don't like to say AI uh, realm, <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're hiring people there who understand how to build and integrate, not, not, not how to use. How to use is not enough uh, for the types of problems that we work on. Like you have to kind of understand why is this problem convex? Why is this problem uh, amenable to a, um, uh, a logistic regression? versus not, um, when uh, should I use tool X versus tool Y based on the problem and how we prove the problem is X. Um, and then on the trusted computing side, we're looking for folks that have uh, experience with formal systems. So like uh, using F star to prove something, using cock to prove something uh, over a piece of software that's solving like a systems problem, like a TLS implementation or a uh, secure measured boot, um, those sorts of things. Well, no wonder there's a labor shortage. You just listed a lot of jobs. So listeners, if that sounds like it's up your alley, don't hesitate to apply and don't hesitate to listen to our next episode. We'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in today. Smash the subscribe button. Bye.